0: Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Good morning, everyone. This is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. On behalf of all of us at BMO Financial Group, thank you so much for joining us in our latest installment of our COVID-19 calls. Uh, for BMO, the Biden presidency, and what lies ahead. We have a lot of great information to share with you today, Uh, three subject matter experts uh, from BMO Financial Group, and of course, Dr. John White, and also joining us today is Dr. Howard Ovens. Before we start the call, though, uh, just a reminder to point you toward our BMO disclosures via the web link enclosed at the bottom of the invitation that you should have received. And if you need help with that, it's www.bmocm.com. Dot com. And of course, given that we're talking about very sensitive medical information, just a reminder that if you need medical advice, please go directly to, uh, to your physician and consult them and or a healthcare professional. So here's how the call is going to work. Uh, as always, we're going to have Dr. John White kick us off. Uh, we'll hand the ball off uh, to Dr. Howard Ovens. Uh, we're going to ask the two doctors to interchange some of their Uh, comments back and forth on what they learned from each other during the call, and then we'll transition uh, to our subject matter experts from BMO. As a reminder, Dr. John White is uh, the chief medical officer at WebMD. He has been BMO Financial Group's primary COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic expert, and we're blessed and fortunate to have him with us during this long journey uh, of uh, the past year or so. Dr. White leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public information uh, with respect to health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagements for the Center of Food and Drug Administration. Uh, also, he worked uh, with healthcare professionals, patients and patient advocates through his years. He's a frontline worker with respect to the virus. He currently still sees patients In the Washington, D.C. area. And with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. John White. Thank you so much for joining us once again.
2: Well, thank you, Brian. And good morning, everyone. I'm going to talk primarily about what's happening in the United States. And my colleague, Dr. Ovens, is going to talk about what's happening in Canada. So, where are we today and where are we likely going? So, keep this in mind we have about 25 million cases in the United States. Most experts believe that number is probably closer to 50 million, 70 million people that actually have had COVID, but never went to get a test, never went to see the doctor. So we don't know for sure. We know it's an underestimate, but at least 25 million cases and the number of deaths is around 420,000. The majority of those have occurred in the last few months. If you think about This has been a year since we first heard about it. But some encouraging news is that the rates of hospitalizations, the rate of death, the rate of new cases is decreasing. And we think that's most likely because we have got beyond the Christmas and holiday surge that we were seeing all around the country. The key will be that we'll want to look at is where does it plateau. We don't want it to plateau at a high number of daily cases and hospitalizations. So we're going to need to wait a few more weeks to see where we're going to plateau, and and that'll have a big play in our return to normal. The big issue right now that's on everyone's minds are these variants, and and just to remind you what a variant is, it's really this. Mutated strain and all viruses mutate. The concern is, does this variant, and the, the one we're often talking about is called B117, is it more transmissible? And there's some early data that suggests it may be more deadly. And that's the reason why we really have to step up our vaccination plan. We've had great development of vaccines, but where we've been lagging is the distribution. And we do see through some research that's going on right now in testing that the current vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer's do protect against this variant. Because what's happening is the antibodies that are developed against the spike protein it's against many aspects of the spike protein. So not just one or two. So if it mutates, that doesn't mean that the vaccine's not going to be effective. Now, Moderna did announce today, the vaccine seems to be less effective, but still protective against the South African variant. And they are developing a booster in case we need it. So this is what everyone really is talking about around the world, this variant and how it's gonna impact vaccination. The preliminary good news is that the vaccines do protect against these different variants, even if it's less antibody protection, it's still enough to provide protection. But that's something that we're gonna need to watch. So where are we with vaccines in the United States? So 41 million vaccines have been distributed across the United States, 41 million, but only 22 million have been given. Think about this in another way, about 5.6% of the population has been given one shot, 5.6%. Less than 1% have gotten two shots. I'm getting my second shot tomorrow of Moderna, So remember, we don't get full protection until about a week after the second dose. So we still have a way to go. And and I know people are listening from around the country. So in case you want to compare, there's a great uh, comparator chart on the CDC's website. I'll, I'll tell you who has the highest vaccination of their population, almost 10%. You might be surprised. It's Alaska, it's West Virginia, and it's New Mexico. And those that are doing, or I should say, that have the lowest vaccination of their residents is Missouri and Idaho, with only 2% of their population vaccinated. So we have a way to go if we want to get that 70 to 80% herd immunity, which really lets us get to that new normal. So, you know, it's always great in, in economics and finance and in medicine, too. It's all about numbers. So if you keep in mind that for approximately adults 16 years of age and older, so remember, that's uh, the Pfizer vaccine, 16 and above, and Moderna, it's 18 and above, that's about 230 million people. Right now, we only have vaccines that are two shots. So that's 460 million doses that we need to do here in the United States. So even if you think it's 75% of that population, we're still going to need about 345 million shots. So with that, if we're averaging about 1.1 million a day, that's not going to be enough. Um, and I know the, the president has a goal of 100 million in 100 days. That's a million a day. We're, we're slightly above that right now. And there's actually been a couple of days where it's about 2 million, and even 3 million doses. But that could be a year. So we really need to develop a strategy to rev it up. We really need, honestly, to be getting at about 2 million a day if we want to accomplish this by summer. Now, the other good news is that Johnson & Johnson Janssen, will likely submit their EUA request for emergency use authorization in a couple of weeks in February. And it's You know, everyone's saying that's one shot. They're also testing two shots, just so you know. And we we don't have the data yet. There is is an adenovirus similar to AstraZeneca and the AstraZeneca vaccine. There's some questions about some of their data, but it's about 70% effective. So if we have one shot, we'll have to see what J&J is. If that's 70% and two shots are, are 94%, is one shot good enough? It doesn't require the super cold temperatures. So we're going to have to see where we are in terms of the data. Uh, You know, we don't go by press releases. We don't go by pre-pubs. We really are going to need to see the data on that. But remember, even with that, if it's one shot, we're still talking an enormous number of vaccinations that we need to be getting done. And, And the issue has been somewhat supply, but it's also been distribution. And the president has announced that he is going to have FEMA Set up sites. The National Guard set up sites, and I'm going to tell you, I think that's a good strategy. They are good at logistics. They are good at planning, and the health system isn't always that good at that. And we're asking the health system and public health departments to take on this responsibility. They're trying the best that they can, but they don't always have the resources. So it really is time to call in National Guard and FEMA, and the president has announced that. In terms of supply, that's been in the news about some reduced. Um, supply some issues so pfizer and moderna combined have announced that there'll be 200 million additional doses by the end of march 200 million another 200 million at the end of june i'm going to be honest those are best case scenarios as you know there can always be issues in the supply chain and then johnson and johnson is currently working on it now they'll have 100 million by april so that is really pretty good in terms of uh, volume of vaccine. Again, the issue is going to be how do we get it into people's arms? And different states have different policies. There's been lack of a central process. I think we're going to see that change in the next few weeks. And many people will ask me, "How do you know when it's your turn?" What I've been telling people: you, you want to look at your your pharmacy loyalty programs often. CVS and Walmart and Walgreens all have those. So you might want to check those out. There's actually a website called vaccinefinder.org. It's not operational yet for COVID. So that's something that you'll want to sign up for as well eventually. Don't expect people to find you when it's your turn. And then you want to sign up at your public health department sites as well to find out information there. The other point I want to remind folks is that vaccination really is a way to help crush the pandemic, but it's not just vaccination. It's still going to be improved testing, and we're seeing that a lot more over the counter testing, a lot of at home testing that has enormous value. We're continuing to see progress in therapeutics, especially the role of monoclonal antibodies, something that has been underutilized, especially early on in the disease process. So we do have a lot of encouraging news when we talk about the supply of vaccine, another 200 million at the end of March, another 200 million at the end of June, another 100 million of J&J in April, we're up to more than 1.1 million. You know, I do think in some ways there could be an approach, don't set goals too high in the new administration. So 100 million over 100 days, that has to be the base that has to be the floor. Our goal should be much higher than that. And I do think we'll get there, especially with this additional resources of FEMA and the National Guard here in the United States. So there's some promising trends that we're seeing even in terms as we think about decrease the rate in number of cases and hospitalizations. So I'm optimistic about where things are going. I'm optimistic that we're gonna see protection against the variant. And, and the good news is we're continuing to collect this data, and I think we really are focused on developing a plan in the next few months to, to address this. And with that, I'm going to turn it back to Brian.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. White, as usual. And now it's on to Dr. Howard Ovens. Uh, Dr. Ovens is an emergency physician and chief medical strategy officer of Sinai Health at the University of Toronto, or as we like to say U of T. Uh, he holds uh, the rank of full professor at the Department of Family and Community Medicine and is a senior fellow in the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation. He is the Ontario expert lead for emergency medicine. In that capacity, he chairs the Emergency Services Advisory Committee. And as part of the pandemic response, sits on the Ontario Health R5 response table representing emergency medicine. Obviously, Dr. Ovens is here to bring us up to date what's going on with Canada. And we'd love to hear what you have to say. And on to you. Dr. Ovens.
3: Well, uh, thank you so much for the kind introduction, Brian, and for your comments, John, and thanks to BMO for the opportunity to be with you here today. And it is uh, an interesting day for us to be talking because uh, January 25th, uh, 2020, was the day that we confirmed our first uh, case of uh, what would eventually be called COVID-19 here in uh, toronto and uh, the first case in ontario in a returned uh, traveler from wuhan and uh we really didn't know uh what we were in for at that point um just uh to um uh, compare how the last year has gone in canada with some of the uh, numbers that john shared for the united states uh, we've had we're about one-tenth the population of uh, the U.S., and we've had uh, 750,000 cases so far total, uh, about 19,000 deaths. So uh, we, we have done a little better than the United States on an international comparison. Uh, like Canada, we are a sort of middling uh, performance, uh, much worse than the best performers like Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, but much better than, uh, the UK, some parts of Europe and, uh, the U S and of course, Brazil and Russia have suffered a lot as well. Um, at this stage, we, um, are at a place that I would describe as frustrating for me and many of my colleagues because the, uh, international experience, um, has been that, uh, uh, You can, with uh, severe uh, public health restrictions, uh, uh, prevent uh, big waves of uh, COVID-19 and uh, that that does not have to hurt the economy. Uh, The WHO just uh, commented on that last week. And yet we seem to keep having to learn the same lesson over and over again in Canada, that um, you can't really take a balanced approach no jurisdiction has successfully treaded water at a sort of moderate level of transmission. Uh, Either you get it knocked down really low or eventually it rises to the point where um, the the government finally surrenders and brings in a lockdown. And so we've had four provinces in Canada, our maritime provinces that have done as well as almost uh, any country internationally, uh, they've kept their travel restrictions in place and economically uh, they've done very well uh, as a result. Also, whereas the other six more populous provinces uh, had large second waves and uh, the, uh, those curves, again, are starting to uh, go down now because after the Christmas uh, social season and when most governments finally brought in lockdowns, We're now starting to see the impact of that. Um, This is all, again, very frustrating because not only do we know how to prevent transmission of COVID at this stage, but uh, with that knowledge and with the knowledge that the vaccines are being rolled out, everyone who's dying or getting seriously ill right now is uh, really a preventable tragedy. And uh, I I like to use the metaphor that it's like being the last soldiers killed before an armistice. It, it really seems very wasteful. Um. So the other part of this is that we are talking a lot about vaccines in Canada. Um, we're arguing about them. Who's getting in line first, second, third? Can we go faster? We've had um, about 1.1 million vaccination doses distributed to the provinces so far. We've administered uh, just over 800,000 of those, about 75%. Um, But to some extent, I would say that um, with the exception of uh, vaccinating our frail elderly in long-term care, where this could be a big lifesaver, it is a bit of a distraction because we can't vaccinate our way out of this second wave. Um, the supply of vaccine, the time it takes to distribute it, the time it takes for the host to have a, a positive antibody response that's protective all suggests that we can't wait for, uh, the, uh, community or herd immunity to get us out of this second wave. We really need to keep our lockdowns in place until we, uh, have received, uh, gotten to a, an acceptable level of transmission. And of course, as John mentioned, we're all facing a new challenge with the new variants. Uh, Up till now, we've been only doing about uh, 5% of our positive samples have we been running a full genomic sequence in Canada. And uh, that takes two to three weeks to produce results. And so we know that the variants are here, especially the UK variant, and the UK variant is responsible for a very severe outbreak in a long-term care facility in a smaller city north of Toronto, Barrie. But that uh, approach will not be sufficient for surveillance for us to try and uh, limit the spread of the new variants. To do that, uh, we need a new approach, and there is an opportunity to leverage some new technology developed here at uh, Sinai Health's uh, Research Institute, the uh, Lunenfeld-Tenenbaum Research Institute, where they have developed uh, under the direction of one of our scientists, Jeff Rana, a bulk, uh, a very rapid analyzer that can do genomic sequencing of what's called slices of the the full genome and identify mutations and variants very, very quickly. But that will be useless unless we can take that information just like we need to from all of our testing and turn it nimbly and quickly into contact tracing and effective isolation. Um, There is a building uh, consensus uh, among the expert community that's starting to have an impact on politicians here on whether we should. Uh, bulk up as well are travel restrictions because of the new variants, both domestically and internationally, with uh, talk of uh, really defining uh, essential travel more carefully, preventing uh, non-essential travel, and putting greater restrictions on returning travelers, not just to produce a negative test, but perhaps to have a supervised uh, period of quarantine on their return. So if I were to summarize that, I'd say the major question facing us in Canada today is, do we have the social consensus and the political courage needed to stay the course on our public health restrictions until we can get the uh, numbers of new cases down low, like we did last spring and summer, well below 100 new cases a day? If we don't, if we give up too soon thinking that the vaccine will save us or that we can once again, try to tread water, um, then what will happen I'm afraid is between COVID fatigue in the public and the presence of the new variants is that we will have a very quick and severe third wave. I'm hoping that, uh, that we can avoid that clearly by doing the right thing and maintaining our masking, our social distancing, and our other public health restrictions while simultaneously beefing up our genomic surveillance and, uh, and our vaccine rollout. So that's a very quick tour of uh, where I th- see things right now. Uh, Canada has been slow to get its vaccine supply, but there is a lot of it under contract that will come in the second and third quarter of 2020. I'm guardedly optimistic that we'll get it uh, rolled out quickly and that we'll be in a very different place come this fall. Uh, But we do have a lot of challenges still ahead of us. And I think I'll I'll leave it there. And of course, happy to take any questions. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Evans. We now have the very unique opportunity for the two doctors to interact uh, with each other as Dr. White's going to kick it off and ask one question to Dr. Ovens, and then we're going to ask Dr. Ovens to ask one question to Dr. White. So, Dr. White, you have the floor.
4: Yeah.
2: I did want to ask Dr. Ovens, and in full disclosure, he and I talked this weekend as well, but I, I wanted to understand, you know, early on, particularly, Canada did much better in terms of the number of cases per population. And do you think it's, it's a cultural issue in terms of Folks may be more receptive to public health messaging by government officials, and there was more consistent messaging. Or, you know, some people have argued it it really was about testing and more wide-scale testing. We're we're kind of forgetting to talk about testing nowadays, but that's also another strategy. So what was it? Was it testing? Was it that people were, were doing the mask and the physical distancing? much sooner and much more frequently in in terms of reducing the number of cases compared to the United States?
3: So we have a number of, thanks John, we do have a number of um, inherited advantages in Canada uh, in dealing with a pandemic like this one compared to the U.S., Uh, the public health system, uh, publicly funded health care that we have in Canada is a help. It's uh, not a problem for people to seek care. Um, it is, uh, we're a, a, a little bit less, more, uh, less densely populated country, which is an advantage with this, uh, with this virus. Uh, we are, our motto is uh, peace order and good government, which, uh, you know, uh, Canadians are generally, um, more, uh, Likely to go along with consensus. And uh, early on, we had a very strong social consensus to follow public health guidelines. Um, and we did get our testing again because of our publicly funded system. I think we were able to get our testing act uh, together early, uh, much uh, better than the US was able to. You had some real hiccups um, with the CDC in your early testing. And of course we had different political leadership. Um, the, uh, pandemic was not politicized in Canada, at least not early on. Um, and we had very good consensus across, uh, opposition as well as, uh, leadership parties, uh, uh, provincial parties that were led by different parties than our, than our federal government. So all that helped us initially. Um, we have seen a little bit of, uh, American uh, media and political influence uh, uh, reflected here in Canada. We have a much stronger uh, COVID denial um, uh, 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 process going on today. Uh, More uh, people against masking, more people against lockdowns, uh, putting a lot of political pressure uh, on our leaders to um, try the so-called balanced approach. Uh, which has failed over and over again Um, but i think those were the major advantages we had early on and actually that's going to lead me to ask the question i want to ask of you um, which is uh, given the impact leadership can have uh and the dramatic change in attitude we've seen this week between the uh, former trump administration and the new biden administration on the way they're going to approach the pandemic. How important a factor is it in the US uh, with the way uh, public health restrictions are managed uh, both municipally and at the state level? How much difference do you think the Biden administration can have in getting your second wave under control?
2: Yeah, and and I already do think that the wave is getting under better control right now. The issue is, as I mentioned, where does it plateau? I think public health messaging is critical, and that's been one of the challenges. So do people need to wear masks? You know, is six feet far enough? We haven't had that consistent messaging from public health experts. We don't necessarily need politicians of whatever party giving people advice that relates to science. So I think we're starting to see a much more consistent message around what we need to do to return to normal or return to the next normal. So I do think it makes a big difference, and we're seeing that over time. I also think we'll have much more of a centralized process going forward in terms of more specific recommendations to state and counties, more coordination by the federal government, and that's gonna have an impact where we are. Thank you. And I did not know that about the model of Canada. So so I learned a, a bit today, so thank you. And with that, I think we'll turn it back to Brian.
0: Uh, thank you, doctors. That was wonderful. We're going to transition now and speak with our, our subject matter experts at Bemal Financial Group. Uh, we're joined right now uh, by Mr. Michael Gregory, who is Deputy Chief Economist at all of Bemal Financial Group, followed by Margaret Cairns, who is the Head of Fixed Income Commodities and Currency Strategy. Then ourselves will follow up with respect to Investment Strategy. Uh, but the floor is yours, Mr. Gregory. Please go ahead.
4: Well, thanks, Brian. Well, obviously, we've uh, had this situation where the, both the U.S. and the Canadian economies have taken a literal turn for the worse uh, through the turn of the year. Uh, we saw the surge in uh, infections we had on both sides of the border led states, provinces, and other local jurisdictions to increase restrictions and lockdowns. And while this is now having a, uh, a demonstrable impact on sort of flattening the curve, and sort of more work has to be done, as as uh, Dr. White has, has has indicated, it's also flattening the, the economic curve too, and uh, and it's creating a lot of uh, economic pain uh, still. And, and we saw that just recently with the uh, latest job numbers for December, we were uh, down 53,000 in household employment in Canada. Uh, payroll employment was down 140,000. Uh, in the us in the month, and even retail sales in December in the us were, were, were negative, suggesting that the, uh, the the real personal consumption expenditures figure for the month was also negative. That'll be the second negative month in a row for real PCE. Uh, it seems that uh, uncertainty about uh, um, whether or not some of the fiscal support programs, government support programs for the economy that were scheduled to expire at year end, Uh, uncertainty around that may have weighed a bit on consumer confidence and uh, the consumer's willingness to spend a lot. So, you know, so we we have that kind of weakness in the economy now. And uh, we do think that uh, for the first quarter as a whole uh, in the U.S., we'll likely still manage to eke out slightly positive growth. One percent annualized uh, compares to about a five percent pace that we're expecting in the fourth quarter in Canada. With slightly more uh, stringent restrictions, more onerous uh, uh, lockdowns, that we do think that we will get uh, about a three percent annualized contraction in the first quarter, and that compares to about a six percent annualized advance in the first quarter. Now, despite these weak numbers, uh, you know the, the the impact of the restrictions and the lockdowns are not going to be as devastating as they were uh, back last spring, uh, where for the most part, you know, we're targeting things a little bit differently uh, and more significantly. Businesses have gotten accustomed to dealing under COVID protocols very quickly when you know, restrictions get put in or lockdowns get instituted. You know, it's very easy to switch to other means of conducting business uh, uh, and uh, online curbside, whatever the case may be. And whereas it took a little longer last time around to sort of figure things out, it's also helpful that certain sectors of the economy continue to provide support. You know, the huge demand for goods that has been generated in our economy continues to ripple over into support for the manufacturing sector. Housing on both sides of the border also doing well. So we suspect as we, uh, you know, uh, in the next few weeks and few months ahead, we'll start to see some relaxation of those restrictions, of those lockdowns, particularly once we get those Curves flatten further when more Americans and Canadians have been vaccinated, and of course the weather warms up uh, much more, and we take much uh, some of that activity sort of outdoors. And we're looking for a pretty decent rebound through the spring and the summer months, kind of similar to what uh, we saw around the middle of last year and into the third quarter. We're looking for uh, a very healthy growth around nine percent uh, uh, annualized on average to Q2 and Q3 in Canada about 7.5% in in the US and uh, and also providing support for for both economies as we kind of get past this uh, uh, second wave of the the pandemic and its impact on the economy is this fiscal support that we've been getting. Now, uh, we already saw earlier that the uh, federal government in Canada had extended some of its programs, the, uh, um, the expanded UI through to September, the wage subsidy through June, and in the latest fiscal update that we had at the end of November, we have some 70 to 100 billion dollars of spending yet to be determined uh, that will be used to uh, help stimulate the recovery uh, phase of this uh, uh, of the coming out of the, the pandemic recession. Now, uh, in the U.S., uh, we saw on December 27th, we finally got that uh, budget bill, which included some roughly 900 billion dollars of additional support. Uh, for the economy. A lot of the measures that were going to expire were extended through to March and April and uh, and that included an additional rebate for for individuals across the United States and uh, and a little bit of a top-up as well for some of the uh, uh, unemployment insurance uh, uh, recipients. Now, we saw in the wake of the uh, uh, election of uh, Joe Biden and the Biden administration has has proposed yet another uh, stimulus bill uh, they're proposing some $1.9 trillion of, of support for the economy, rather large amounts. Uh, it's unclear how much of this will actually you know, get passed. We're already beginning to see in in um, you know the, the GOP are digging in their heels a little bit here as to the magnitude uh, of, of that uh, fiscal response. And let's face it, even some conservative Democrats may have a problem with some of these measures. So You know, we are assuming, though, that we do get additional fiscal support. Uh, We're penciling in something around half of what uh, the the initial proposal will be. Seems that's a good place to compromise between zero and 1.9, somewhere in half. So basically in the U.S., we've got sort of back to back fiscal stimulus programs that are going to, again, provide that support for the economy through the spring and the summer months and uh, get the kind of results that we've seen. And there's another aspect of the economy too, I do think, which we have to be a little bit more optimistic about as well, is that uh, because of uh, this uh, support for households and their, uh, through the various unemployment insurance and tax rebates and things like that on both sides of the border, we've seen that uh, uh, we've amassed a lot of additional saving. Uh, and, uh, and, and that saving, it roughly has, compared to what we were saving before the pandemic, it roughly is amount to about 150 billion dollars of, of additional uh, uh, potential spending power in the U.S. Uh, from uh, in the U.S. a magnitude of about 1.4 trillion dollars. Both of those come in about six percent of GDP, or slightly more than six percent, and that's a powerful, powerful uh, uh, backstop for the economy. Uh, and we do think that will help on you know provide a little bit more support for for the recovery. And if anything. You know, uh, there's a little bit of concern in the market now that, uh, you know, a little bit of consumer spending, a little bit of limitations on the availability of goods and services. We're going to get a little bit of an inflation problem kind of early to be talking a, a bit about that. But nevertheless, I do think we're in the period now, once we get past this 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 uh, 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 winter hump in COVID, I do think that uh, the, the spring and the summer months looks much stronger for both the Canadian and U.S. economies. And with that, I'll turn things over to my colleague, Margaret Cairns.
5: Thank you very much, Michael. As anyone who watches the fixed income markets from a day-to-day basis already knows, the market continues to oscillate between the good news on the vaccine front, the good news when we have good news on fiscal stimulus, uh, versus the slower than expected uh, rollout and the surging cases of the pandemic that continue to sweep through the globe. So we did have a run a bear market uh, run a few weeks ago, um, and that's kind of consistent with the. I think what are the three main themes in in the market currently? Uh, first, it is the reflation theme that Michael alluded to. It's not really today's story, in our opinion, but. Ten-year yields uh, did get pushed up to uh, just over 118 a few weeks ago, which was a whopping 28 basis point move in tens only to rally back down. We currently sit in the middle of the year-to-date range, which I know we're not that far into uh, the range. In terms of 10-year yields, we think that the next move is likely to breach 1% on the downside and not uh, move to the 125 mark. Uh, We do see that later in the year as we expect a bear steepening. Uh, Bear steepening in the market right now is the consensus trade, and the way that we at BMO Capital Markets differ than the rest of the market is that we do think that Fed action caps how much 10s and 30s can back up. And what I mean by that, it, it ties right into the other, I think, two themes that are dominating our market. So I first, you know, the first was the re-inflation trade. The second is there are concerns about financial asset price appreciation, the bubble risk, and those two. Sorry, those two themes are related in that if we get a market pricing on on either the reflation trade or the letting out of the bubble or bursting of the bubble, it basically means that the Fed must come back in uh, stronger than they already are in terms of monetary policy accommodation. And that will cap or should cap how far 10s and 30s can go over the course of this year. And when I say go, I mean on the upside to higher rates. We do think the front end remains anchored and that is very consistent with Fed messaging that they will keep rates near the zero bound for the next few years. So if we think about one, one theme that we are thinking about at at BMO and really looking through the data is the amount of treasury issuance relative to what the Fed has purchased during this pandemic period. And we did use the numbers that Michael came up with, kind of the the middle of the road. Let's let's take that 1.9 and cut it in half to come up with some estimates for treasury issuance uh, this year and if we hold coupon issuance so we've got treasury bills which are very very short and then we've got coupons that go all the way out to 30 years if we hold coupon issuance study at the current auction size amounts we expect 1.7 trillion of coupons to uh, be issued into the market next year, this current year in 2021. And this is the amount after the Fed already purchases the expected $960 billion. So to put it in a little bit of perspective, in March and April of this year, the Fed came in and purchased a large amount of U.S. Treasuries, Slowed purchases down uh, after the initial few months, but the year of 2020 ended with net negative issuance of coupons into the market. So everybody else that buys treasuries except for the Fed, they actually had negative about $500 billion in supply. And the effect of this was really to the first order effect, of course, was to stabilize the financial markets uh, that were seizing up uh, in the early days of the pandemic. But the second order effect was to push investors out the risk curve into corporate debt and into equities. And so, one of the things that we're looking at, one of the themes that we're looking at this year is the evolution. Of treasury supply and demand in the marketplace because treasury supply has to clear the market, people will buy it, and it really becomes a matter of how do they make room for this supply? Do do they sell some of those risk assets that they have purchased in uh, 2020, Um, or do they continue to move out the risk curve in sort of the, you know, you can't fight the Fed trade. So that's one theme that we are watching. Uh, Overall, agree with uh, what Dr. White and Dr. Ovens stated about the recovery, that it is going to take time for the vaccinations to reach the population. Uh, in the United States and in Canada. And for us, this means that the reopening will continue to be slow. And we remain concerned about the state of long-term employment and getting the 10 million lost jobs that remain uh, lost uh, back, those people back to work. And and for us, it's really a long uh, grind for a long economic process. Agree with Michael that, you know, we will have a pop, um, in a lot of uh, pent up demand and, and savings uh, in the second half of the year, but we still think that we've got a long slog uphill uh, throughout this entire pandemic. And on that note, I will pass it back to Brian Belski.
0: Thank you so much, Margaret and Michael. We'll be back to you for some potential questions um, after uh, we go to the doctors. And so before we talk about investment strategy with respect to what we're thinking, both in terms of the Canadian stock market and U.S. Dr. and I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. We have a tremendous audience right now, and we have received a lot of questions prior uh, to this event, and so please know that we will have all of this available with respect to a recording uh, of this event follow up on our bmocm.com site, and I myself will be publishing a podcast later tomorrow uh, that is a quick review of the doctor's comments and as well as some of the macro things that you are hearing and obviously thank you so much for all the questions that you submitted uh, during part of my comments i'm going to cheat and ask myself one of the a couple of questions i'm sorry uh, that you all asked but in the meantime i thought i can kind of give you a, a quick overview with respect to what we're thinking uh, in terms of our conclusions with respect to both uh, the u.s and canadian stock markets to we'll start with canada uh, we think Canada will close at 19,500 and $1,100 of earnings with respect to the TSX. Uh, we do believe continue to believe that as a quote-unquote value proposition uh, with respect uh, to the U.S. and we do continue to favor sectors like financials, materials, consumer discretionary, uh, and industrials in Canada. With respect to the U.S., we still think the U.S. Uh, is in the midst of a 20-year bull market. The second half of the bull market was reset on March 20th, 23rd. I'm sorry, of 2020. these next 10 years are going to look very different than the previous 10 years, more bottoms up stock picking more fundamental. We believe that brings us to an S&P 500 target of 4,200 on earnings of $175. We do believe that the themes uh, for 2021 are going to be about unprecedented earnings growth, especially in the second half, which dovetails very nicely with respect to Margaret's views on fixed income and Michael's views in terms of uh, the strong earnings recovery we're going to see uh, in the economy. Nonetheless, uh, we have been talking for quite some time that this quote unquote, return to normal trade or the hope in uh, prayer for normalcy in 2021 may be a bit premature. I think obviously you've heard from both Dr. Evans and Dr. White that it's going to take some time uh, with respect to both therapeutics and vaccines. That's just a common sense approach to say, we're not gonna be quite as normal as we would all hope to be in our normal lives and our business lives in 2021. That being said, we think the effect on the stock market is all about uh, the US and Canada having the best equity assets in the world, period. That's what the stimulus is purchasing. That's why people are investing in North America. And we think that trend continues. So a couple quick questions that we received uh, prior to the event uh, would be, number one, Brian, we saw you on BNN and you said that you expected a stronger market in the first half of the year in a softer last two quarters. So what does that mean? Uh, because we've already heard that the economy is most likely going to be stronger in the second half, and we're going to see some changes with respect to yields in the bond market in the second half. Well, unlike others, uh, we'd like to be kind of uh, less consensus, others meaning what you're hearing on, on the television and some of our other compatriots uh, with respect to other firms. And And I think it's common wisdom that the stock market uh, is going to be stronger in the second half. We would take the other side of that trade and think that, that the market is going to be stronger. The first half of the year, especially considering you heard a lot about stimulus coming, we actually think there's going to be even stronger stimulus and the market's going to be anticipating that. And as such, we think that we are and should be positioned for very strong markets uh, to open uh, the the year. And think about it kind of counterintuitively, once everything starts to really look better and earnings start to come in and valuations uh, start to come in. That's probably where you want to be even more diversified uh, and more consistent and analytical with respect to how you're managing your portfolio. Second question that we received and I can talk about right now is with respect to sectors and where to be invested. I already talked about the areas in Canada that we like, but with respect to the U.S., we've become a little bit more cyclical recently and upgraded materials to an overweight. I think it should be diversified across that sector in terms of chemicals and papers and, and, and metals uh, especially. But our favorite sectors heading into 2021 continue to be financials, consumer discretionary, and industrials. We think those are areas that that the majority of our institutional clients around the world are massively underweight, especially the financial side of things. And we want you to play themes. So scale is our favorite theme in financials, more of the money center banks, brokers and asset managers. We want you to be diversified in industrials, have a mixture of both domestic and international growers, especially given the fact that the Biden administration is gonna be more friendly with respect to supply chains uh, and the like in consumer discretionary. You know, we're good at a, a couple things in the United States and Canada. One of them is spending money. Uh, and we still think that the Amazons, uh, the Lulu's and the lifestyle stocks are gonna to continue to be quite strong. Those are our formal comments. And remember, too, that you can please always access BMOCM.com for all of our uh, comments with respect to the subject matter experts or reach out to your relationship manager and try to get on distribution lists or see uh, several of our published reports that obviously that we have been publishing. We're going to segue back into the doctors uh, one more time here as we kind of go into the Q&A section of, of this broadcast. And I think we're gonna start off with a question for Dr. White and then a question for Dr. Ovens. So Dr. White, today we heard the news uh, that Merck is pulling out of the vaccine business and moving more toward therapeutics. On these calls, you've done a wonderful job talking about the importance of therapeutics uh, during this entire process of the last year or so. What do you think uh, is going on with Merck and what's the tr- strategic advantage for Merck or others per se to really focus on the therapeutics at this time?
2: And I think part of it is when they announced their decision, they talked about what their vaccine studies were looking like. Moderna and Pfizer have set a very high bar at 94, 95%. So if you're not going to come close to that, you're at a huge disadvantage. So I'm not surprised by that, because it's going to be very competitive. In terms of therapeutics, we still have a way to go in, in terms of, are you going to be at early on in disease, such as monoclonal antibodies? Or are you going to be later in terms of remdesivir, or you know strictly hospitalization? So there's going to be a shift, I think, as we realize, as Dr. Ovens pointed out, We can't vaccinate our way out of the current surges. We also have to use these other strategies. So it makes sense, even though, as you all know, Merck has a long history in vaccines, that therapeutics is going to be a category that's going to persist for some time.
0: Great, thank you so much, Dr. White. And on to you, Dr. Ovens. There's been a lot of news in the press with respect to Canadians coming down to the United States for the vaccine. What is your take on that? And what is the government's official response to that?
3: Yeah, thanks for that question, Brian. Um, So I've actually been asked by some people whether they should go to Florida or not to get the vaccine. Um, mainly people who do have uh, uh, properties in Florida and were staying home this uh, this winter. And uh, at an individual level, the analysis has to include the risk of contracting COVID uh, on your way to or while you're on the ground in Florida, uh, your ability to stay safe uh, while you're there, as well as uh, your ability to uh, legally access the vaccine, uh, which is the purpose of your trip. Um, At a more macro level, um, I think that uh, it's not really, uh, again, I I think the original intention of uh, the Florida uh, state government was to treat their seasonal uh, uh, residents the same as their year-round residents, people who own property there spend a good part of the year there, pay taxes there, spend a lot of money there and are at risk because of their age. And that was, a, I think, a, a, a smart political, economic and friendly gesture. And for people to fly there, especially to get the vaccine uh, at a much uh, sort of 30,000 foot level, if you will, uh, I don't think that's a good neighborly thing to do. I, I It's uh, greatly uh, um, Annoyed, with good reason, uh, Florida residents who are still waiting to get vaccinated. It does add additional risk to Canada for people to be traveling uh, when they don't have to be. They could stay safe here while waiting for uh, their turn to get vaccinated here. And I think it does contribute somewhat to uh, the feeling that people with privilege are being treated differently or having a different experience during the pandemic and is probably contributing towards uh, the discussion we're having in Canada now about uh, more stringent restrictions against people uh, traveling for non-essential reasons. Thank you
0: so much, Dr. Evans. Well, in the last few minutes we have remaining, we have a very strong uh, uh, thing that we do all the time on these calls, and we want to end with a positive note. And so we're going to ask each one, Uh, of our panelists. We're going to start with Margaret, then Michael, then Dr. Ovens, and then close out with Dr. White in terms of our tradition to close with a positive thing. So Margaret, can you please lead us off in terms of the most positive thing that you can see that's going on in your markets and then hand it off to Michael.
5: Sure. Thank you, Brian. I think the most positive thing is that the Fed and the fiscal government Will stand ready to support the markets if need be, and that this is giving a sense of calm to the markets. The Fed portfolio has increased by you know three trillion dollars, putting an enormous wall of cash into the financial markets. And when it comes time for them to begin to to step back, which will not be um, today's story or next year's story, most likely. Um, I think they're going to have to do it very delicately just because of the um, amount that they have put into the market. So, yeah, positive note is that the Fed and the fiscal government will do what it takes to keep our markets functioning. And there will be plenty of issuance for people to buy.
4: Well, I, I think probably the most positive thing, and I'll dovetail a bit with Margaret, is that on both sides of the border, uh, the, the, the fiscal authorities, the monetary authorities are standing ready to do what is, ever, what is needed to make sure that the economy's uh, little dip we're having right now is minimized. And we do have that uh, a strong foundation for, for a robust recovery when the restrictions, and the lockdowns start being lifted. And again, I, 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 I think that, uh, you know, the, the fact that we're like even in Washington now, we've got a little bit more better leadership and, and trying to make sure we're just following the basic, you know, uh, protocols uh, uh, in terms of mask wearing and distancing and things like that. I, I think it can further add to this trying to get these case rates under control when we can then, you know, uh, that first criteria we need to get those uh, restrictions started being lifted and, and the, the, you know, in households, broadly speaking, are, are in good shape that the help contribute to that recovery, unleashing a bit of pent up demand. So, so again, I don't think this downturn is be as bad as it was a year ago. And I do think that, uh, you know, we will get a pretty decent uh, economy by this summer.
3: Well, um, uh, I'm very optimistic, um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, science has, uh, really, uh, been one of the consistent features of this pandemic response, really uh, fantastic developments in testing, genomic sequencing, vaccination, uh, therapeutics. And uh, I'm excited at this point because I still think, although science has answered the call, the sociopolitical response has been spottier. And I think the U.S. rejoining the World Health Organization, joining the COVAX group to try and uh, support third world countries, developing countries who need help getting their vaccination. I think those are very important developments that are going to help us uh, get all this back under control and help uh, bring us out of this pandemic.
2: You know, Brian, this is titled the Biden presidency. And, And what I'm optimistic about is we're hearing from the president talk about that there is no more important problem than addressing the COVID pandemic. And you can see that there is a singular laser focus on how to address this from a public health strategy, from a financial strategy. You hear the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, says addressing COVID is the number one problem for him. That's his commitment. So I think we're seeing this all across the federal government in a way that we have never seen. And I think that's going to go a long way in addressing this from a scientific perspective or from a financial perspective and a public health perspective. And, and that's really what we need because we're not safe until we're all safe and everything else can't return to normal until we really adequately address the pandemic. And that's what I think we're doing. So that's what I'm very optimistic about.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. White. And on behalf of BMO Financial Group, thank you all for joining us. I'd like to thank our BMO uh, capital markets subject matter F- experts, uh, both Margaret Cairns and Michael Gregory. Thank you so much for joining us again. Dr. Ovens, you were a great addition. And of course, uh, Dr. White, thank you for sticking with us here at BMO uh, for all these several months. Just a reminder uh, please reach out to your relationship manager uh, to see our published reports or receive a copy of, of this recording here today. And you can do that also from bmocm.com. Everyone, please stay safe and stay well. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you real soon.
4: Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.
0: For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com slash legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit com slash public dash disclosure slash.